Take your Bibles, if you wouldn't, turn with me to Psalm 63. It's not where you were expecting to go this morning. It's not where I was expecting to go this morning. Um, I had a very strange thing happen to me this week. It's only happened a couple of times since I've been a pastor. Um, I, I write my sermons a week in advance. So the sermons I wrote this last um, week were not for this Sunday. They were for next Sunday. Next Sunday is the Sunday before Thanksgiving. So I was writing a Thanksgiving sermon. And I have a, a sermon that the Lord has laid on my heart for a few weeks um, and went about to write that sermon. Um, I, I, I write my sermons ahead for several reasons. One, because sometimes things happen in the week and I don't get to get to my sermons or I don't get to put the amount of time necessary into them and I don't want to short you on a Sunday. So if I am ahead a week, then if something comes up, it doesn't mean that I'm unprepared for Sunday. Um, the second reason is because sometimes people feel as though I wrote a sermon specifically because of their actions in a week. Uh, because what I preach is exactly what they were dealing with in the week. And I can say, uh-uh, I wrote this before that happened to you. Um, and so then they can know that the Lord did it. Well, in, in this case, actually, that didn't happen. Um, I, I, I set out to write my Thanksgiving sermon. And when I finished writing it, it wasn't the sermon I intended to write. Um, and I still want to preach that sermon. And then as I looked at this sermon, I said, okay, I'm going to preach that one on, as the Thanksgiving sermon. Uh, but then I, I, I felt very strongly that I should preach it today and preach the sermon that I intended to preach next week, which is not written yet because this one is kind of what, what, what ended up being written. Uh, and that doesn't happen often. Usually what I write is what I intend to write. I'm not saying something mystical happened. I'm simply saying that the sermon that developed was not the sermon I intended. And that happens sometimes. You know, I, and, and I apologize. Those of you were, that were expecting my Israel sermon today, uh, it won't be for two more weeks. I'm sorry for that. Um, it is coming. I was very much ex anticipating that, that one today, but, but um, I ask you to give me this one. Um, we talk regularly as we ought about faith. We speak of what faith is. Uh, when we know, when what we know becomes what we believe and so affects what we do. That's how we define faith at Legacy Baptist Church. We speak about trust. Last month, we memorized Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 together. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart. Lean not into thine own understanding. In all thy ways, acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. And we might even regularly connect many words to the concept of faith, many words to the concept of trust. But one of those words that we don't necessarily always connect to faith or to trust is the word gratitude or thanksgiving. Um... But this is a connection that I would like to highlight today. Again, I was writing a different Thanksgiving sermon, and it's funny because I wrote an introduction to that sermon for what I was expecting to write. And then I went to this passage and I wrote a sermon, and it didn't really have to do with my introduction. And then my conclusion was actually back to what I was saying in my introduction, and I finished that sermon, and I looked at it, and I said, this is two sermons, and I don't know how it be, I don't know what happened here. So then I wrote a new introduction, a new conclusion, and said this needs to be two sermons, and we went from there. Psalm 63 is an interesting one. You actually hear me quote Psalm 63 quite often in prayer. Because thy loving kindness is better than life, my lips shall praise thee. I pray that quite often as a remembrance to us that we praise the Lord because of who he is. I'd like to read Psalm 63 together, and then we're going to talk about it today. The Bible says this, a psalm of David. 
when he was in the wilderness of Judah. O God, thou art my God, early will I seek thee. My soul thirsteth for thee, my flesh longeth for thee in a dry and thirsty land where no water is, to see thy power and thy glory, so as I have seen thee in the sanctuary. Because thy loving kindness is better than life, my lips shall praise thee. Thus will I bless thee while I live. I will lift up my hand in thy name. My soul shall be satisfied as with morrow and fatness, and my mouth shall praise thee with joyful lips when I remember thee upon my bed and meditate on thee in the night watches. Because thou hast been my help, therefore in the shadow of thy wings will I rejoice. My soul followeth hard after thee. Thy right hand upholdeth me. But those that seek my soul to destroy it shall go into the lower parts of the earth. They shall fall by the sword. They shall be a portion for foxes. But the king shall rejoice in God. Everyone that sweareth by him shall glory, but the mouth of them that speak lies shall be stopped. So David writes this psalm, he says, when he is in the wilderness of Judah. There's a couple of different times in David's life where he is in the wilderness of Judah. The first is when he is fleeing from Saul. Uh, his life is in danger because Saul wants to destroy him because he has been uh, clearly chosen as the next king. Saul sees that as a threat to him, to his son, to his line, to his posterity, to his pride, to everything that he had committed himself unto. And so he goes about to destroy David. David, in turn, is determined not to touch, lay hands on the Lord's anointed. And so David finds himself in a very vulnerable place. Yet he has these promises. He has this anointing by the prophet Samuel. He has these things. And we would wonder if maybe this is the time that David is wrestling with, but it seems not to be so. And the reason why is because of that last verse there, verse 11, where David says, But the king shall rejoice in God. Now the king, when David is fleeing from Saul, is Saul. David makes no bones about the fact that the king that is fleeing, when he is fleeing from Saul, that the king of, the t of that time is Saul. That it will be God who will depose that king, not, not, not David himself. To that end, uh, it would seem incongruent for him to be saying that the king will rejoice in God if Saul is the king, because uh, the king was not doing a whole lot of that in that time. However, there's another time where David was in the wilderness of Judah. That other time was in 2 Samuel 15 and 16 when David had to flee from his home because of his son Absalom. And he had to go across the river Jordan into the wilderness of Judah. And he had to go there because his son Absalom was attempting to kill him. And this would have been much later in David's life. This would have been in the latter portion of his reign. Just as vulnerable, just as much that is unknown. Only this time David is recognizing the fruit of some of his own choices. David is recognizing he has placed himself wholly within the hands of the Lord. And what is interesting about that time on the back end is that, see, when David was in Judah, fleeing in the wilderness, in the various wildernesses, um, and Gedi and such, away from Saul, David had with him the assurance of that anointing by which he, he at least had an expectation of the Lord. That the Lord would see him through and make him king because he had been anointed that king. And he would not touch the Lord's anointed because he was waiting for God to install him as king. And he took the time to trust and to rejoice in the Lord. And there were difficult days and those days are well recorded in the Psalms. What is interesting, however, about David's time when he flees from Absalom if you recall, he's being mocked and scorned, and he says, let them do so. It's the Lord. I'm in the Lord's hands. David did not know what the results of that would be. David had no more promise of a continued reign at that point in time. 
David was utterly in a place of vulnerability, trusting that the Lord will do what the Lord sees fit. And so that's the, the backdrop that we would likely believe this psalm was written behind. And from a certain perspective, it would seem somewhat out of place that David would write such praises in the midst of this trial, this trouble, this vulnerability, this fear. Yet from another perspective, we understand, and, and those of you, which is most of you, who have gone through or are going through difficult times know this quite well, the abundant ministry of the Spirit of God in the hearts of His people during times of difficulty and distress. Christian, the principles of Thanksgiving. We're coming up to Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is an important time of year. It's a time that we don't give enough importance to in the church. I've been convicted of that a little bit more lately, and we'll, we'll, we'll see what that does for years to come. It is a, a, a time that is important. Um, certainly not given any, any time in culture any longer, at least from the true Thanksgiving perspective. We'll perhaps talk more about that next week. But the principle of Thanksgiving does not just exist for the day of plenty. The principle of Thanksgiving does not just exist for the day of comfort. And the principle of Thanksgiving does not just exist for the day of rest. In fact, the principle of Thanksgiving all the more finds its importance in the day of trouble and of trial. And this, in fact, drives to the heart of what biblical Thanksgiving is and what biblical Thanksgiving isn't. It's a misunderstanding that we can fall into to think that the foundation of Thanksgiving is good circumstances. Good circumstances are a wonderful thing. And it is certainly appropriate in times of plenty, in times of wellness, in times of good circumstances to give plenty of thanksgiving and praise to the Lord. But what we find as we look at what the scriptures tell us about thanksgiving is that thanksgiving is not founded upon the circumstances within which we find ourselves. Thanksgiving is founded upon the God who stands above those circumstances. So I'd like to break this psalm down together this morning and see how it is that as David sat in the wilderness of Judah, presumably wondering what was going to happen, whether his son Absalom was going to be successful in his attempted overthrow of the kingdom, whether... The Lord was going to see fit to bring him back to Jerusalem or no. As he flees from these things, how it is that David saw it within himself to write such a psalm. Verses 1 and 2. Psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. O God, thou art my God. Early will I seek thee. My soul thirsteth for thee. My flesh longeth for thee in a dry and thirsty land where no water is. To see thy power and thy glory. So as I have seen the in the sanctuary. So David is describing these difficult days. And notice that what he finds in these difficult days is he finds himself separated from what he would normally expect as it relates to a context of the Lord's presence. Uh, in this case, there's, there's a very literal, right? It's a very literal thing. David sees the Lord's presence rooted in the, the, the tabernacle, which is sitting on Mount Zion. David brought it to Jerusalem. It has been there since David uh, was, was successful, at least in bringing the ark to Jerusalem and, and putting it within the tabernacle. That has been the place of the tabernacle for some time. 
And David says his soul is thirsting for the Lord, for the tabernacle of the Lord, for the presence of the Lord. David is in a place where he is seeking to fall upon the Lord for his help, but he is doing so in absence of the tabernacle, in absence of the place where he can go and he can lay those things before the Lord quite, quite physically. Things are different. Things are out of sorts. Things are not as they normally are. And David feels that difference. He is away from home. This distance is brought on by fleeing from his enemies, from the difficulty of his circumstances. And because of this, God, in a sense, it seems, feels distant from David. And yet he says his soul is thirsty for the Lord as a body in a dry and thirsty land where no water is. He feels this craving for the presence of the Lord. How is it that we find the presence of the Lord when things are out of sorts? How is it that we find that place of rest when things are out of sorts? And what is so fascinating about this psalm is that David's solution is gratitude, praise, and thanksgiving. David is not in this sense here in this moment in verses 1 and 2 a happy guy. He is not uh, setting a table of abundance in the land of peace here. He is not as he did in his day sitting in his house of cedars contemplating the goodness of God as the kingdom has been brought together under his rule saying, now I want to do something for God. We're going to talk a lot more about that next week. This is the day where David is out of sorts, where he is confused, where he doesn't know exactly how to deal with those feelings because he can't just go into the tabernacle of the Lord and lay himself down before the Lord as he might normally and lay these, lay these things before him. So then notice what David says next. Because thy loving kindness is better than life, my lips shall praise thee. And I love this word loving kindness. It's well used in the Hebrew Old Testament, used 249 times. 137 of those times, the King James translates it mercy. David is longing for the Lord in the wilderness of Judah. He is separated from the tabernacle. He is exposed and vulnerable. He is entirely in the hands of the Lord. He had done some things, right? He, he left Jerusalem and he fled. He left uh, a couple of people there to advocate for his cause in, in, in various ways. But he has no idea what's going to happen. But David looks at something different when he settles into his determined praise. He does not look at the circumstances within which he finds himself. Instead, he looks to the mercy of God. A mercy which David says is better than life. A loving kindness which is better than life. Far better, David says, than for me to have what I expect or what I want out of life is to rest in your loving kindness. Far less vulnerable, David says, for me to sit in the wilderness not knowing what's going to happen, but knowing that it is in God's hands than for me to have access to all of the things that I would normally have access to, to, have, to be in a, that place of comfort in my own power. Rather than complain to God in this moment of vulnerability or of difficulty, David chooses to praise. He sees God's mercies. 
Christian, we live in God's world. We sang that this morning, right? This is my Father's world. And we can forget that. But we sang this morning, oh, let me ne'er forget that though the wrongs seem off so strong, God is the ruler yet. We can forget that this is the, our Father's world, not, not because we're selfish. I mean, it, it's possible that it's because we're selfish, but we can forget that it's our Father's world outside of selfishness. We can forget that it's our Father's world because we are faithless, but we can forget that it's our Father's world outside of faithlessness. Because we live in this body, the body of flesh, and we can get consumed, distracted, if you will, with that which lays in front of us, we can forget that this is, in fact, our Father's world. One of the most famous examples of this in Scripture is Job's wife. Right? Job lost his family. He lost his goods. He lost his health. He's sitting in sackcloth. He's sitting in ashes. He is in tremendous pain from head to foot. And Job's wife enters the picture for one verse in the Scriptures. Job 2, verse 9. Then said his wife unto him, Dost thou still retain thine integrity? Curse God and die. Now this is the only contribution Job's wife makes to the inspired record. And that's a pretty unfortunate thing for her. Because it gives the impression that she's not a very grounded woman. But we don't know that. As a matter of fact, it seems as though that may not be the case from Job's response, which we'll get to in a minute. We don't know that she's not a grounded woman. We don't know that she has no faith. We don't know that she has no trust. We don't know that she, she is being selfish here. We don't know those things. What we know is that this woman just lost seven sons and three daughters. What we know is that this woman's life was just turned inside out. What we know is that this woman is now watching her husband afflicted from head to foot, suffering in sackcloth and in ashes, scraping himself with, the piece, with a piece of a pot. And so we might give this woman a bit of slack in that moment, a little bit of grace. But that being said, we learn from this that if, if, if in fact she is a good woman, a godly woman, as we might expect because her husband was a great and godly man, that she was still very human. And in that moment of distress, she still saw what was in front of her. And that's going to happen in our lives, isn't it? In this moment, however, Job's wife stands as the representative of natural human grief, of natural human confusion, of natural human unknowns. But then we come to Job's response. He said in verse 10, Thou speakest as one of the foolish women speaketh. What? Shall we receive good at the hand of God, and shall we not receive evil? In all this did not Job sin with his lips. So Job seems to in, imply, at least, that she's kind of outside of herself in this, right? Which is why we might imagine that she's not what her singular quote in Scripture represents her to be, and that's neither here nor there. But then Job says, Shall we receive good at the hand of God, and shall we not receive evil? The word evil in Scripture is not a word to speak of wickedness. That's uh, one of those things that can confuse us because as we think of the idea of evil today, the way that we use evil in the English is if something is evil, we attribute that to something that is wicked, right? Something that is of the devil, something that is of, uh, of, of the darkness. However, the word evil in our King James Bibles does not mean wickedness. It simply means bad, 
not good. It's the, 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 the things that, that, that aren't positive, negative. And so in, in this case, it is not the idea that the Lord is doing wickedness to Job. It is just that the Lord has as much a right to bring us bad days as good days from our perception. And that whether or not God brings us bad days or good days, it does not change who God is, what the Bible says of him, what we know of him, his operation, his wisdom, his loving kindness, his mercy, his goodness. None of these change based upon the changes that we face in our lives. And this is the same idea in Psalm 63. God's goodness is not conditioned upon your circumstances, Christian. But here's the thing. That applies to God's goodness toward me in the midst of my circumstances. I say regularly, I pray regularly, God, we know that, that your goodness is not conditioned upon our circumstances. You'll, you'll hear me say that somewhat regularly. But it gets a little different when it's my circumstances, doesn't it? Then the battle starts anew. David can write the psalms of praise in the day that he is sitting in his house of cedars and his enemies have fled before him and he looks at the sword of Goliath on his wall that, 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 that he used to, to, to take off Goliath's head. And he thinks of the great victories and he thinks of the, 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 the monumental ways that God has worked. And in that day, it makes a lot of sense. But what about the day where he's fleeing for his life from his son? In the day that all Israel has gone after Absalom. Yet the God who has given us life and all things pertaining unto both life and godliness, this very God is, in fact, a loving, kindly God, a God of loving kindness, a merciful God. For this very God is doing what he does in my life as an extension of his mercy. God's loving kindness is not just good. God's loving kindness transcends the very limitations of life itself. Paul tells us in Philippians 1.21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And because God's loving kindness is better than life, David then says, my lips shall praise thee. And this is as much a determination as it is a desire. David has planted his feet in praise. And he is going to stand there undeterred by the circumstances around him. So then David says in verse 4, thus will I bless thee while I live. I will lift up my hands in thy name. Because this loving kindness of God is better than life, David says, and it stands before the eyes of God's people in unambiguous clarity, David says, I will bless the Lord as long as I live. He says, I will lift up hands to God's name. The picture of that, of course, being worship, right? The lifting up of holy hands, the blessing of the Lord in that day. 
directing my will and my vision unto the Lord, acknowledging that it is the heavens and not the earth that has the authority. It is the heavens and not the earth that has the right over me. It is the heavens and not the earth that has the right not just over my body, but over my soul, over my circumstances, and over, if I am rightly adjusted, my reaction to those circumstances. David's determination, however, is not just to stop at praise, verses 5 and 6. My soul shall be satisfied as with marrow and fatness. My mouth shall praise thee with joyful lips when I remember thee upon my bed and meditate on thee in the night watches. Uh, David is not only determined to praise the Lord for his loving kindness, he is also determined to be satisfied. This is interesting because he begins this psalm by saying that his soul thirsts and longs for the Lord like a man in a dry and a thirsty land where no water is. So he has this longing, he has this thirsting, and, and the, the very picture there is of a dissatisfaction, right? The idea of one who is thirsty is one who has a need that is not being filled, and so there is a dissatisfaction. The body is dissatisfied with its current state, and so it is expressing that thirst as a means by which to have that satisfaction brought to it to be quenched, and yet Yet David says here in this place of thirst where he cannot go to the Lord, to the presence of the Lord, to the tabernacle of the Lord and see that that fulfilled in this day because of the circumstances that are around him. He determines my soul shall be satisfied as with marrow and fatness. Though he cannot praise in the tabernacle, David says, yet I will still I am determined to praise nevertheless. Though he cannot experience the satisfaction of seeing, of smelling, the smoke of the acceptable sacrifice lifts up to God of heaven on the altar in the tabernacle. Yet, David says, though through the praise of his lips, through the lifting of his hands, he is determined that his soul will be satisfied as if it were with marrow and fatness. And he will, it will be so as he praises the Lord with joyful lips. Do you see the connection between the determination to have the satisfaction of his soul and the praise that he is determined to give unto the Lord. The gratitude, the thanksgiving. Normally, David might just, in that time of thirst, in that time of being parched, in that time of need uh, to, for, for the Lord's presence, need for the Lord's satisfaction, he might just go into the tabernacle. He might put a, 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 a lamb on that altar. He might watch it burn. He might fall down before the Lord in the presence of the Lord in the tabernacle. He cannot do that. So he says, instead, I will simply praise the Lord where I am. And I will bring about that satisfaction that my soul seeks as I express my gratitude, my thanksgiving, my praise, my joy unto him. David's mind falls upon the loving kindness of the Lord upon his bed that he has made for himself in the wilderness. He will meditate upon the Lord as he serves his night watch. This is interesting too, is it not? David is not in the bed of his house that night. David gets up in the middle of the night to serve the night watch. What are they watching for? In this moment, they're watching because an enemy might come and kill him. That's what they're watching for. That's the place of vulnerability he's in. They have night watchmen because he has fled from his son. His son is deciding what to do about it. If he had listened to Ahithophel, they would have gone and killed him that night. God restrained him from doing so. But that's what David knew was a very real possibility that night. He was vulnerable. 
So they had night watchmen. And as David is watching that night, sitting up, wondering if he's going to see enemies come across the hill, he says, My mouth shall praise thee with joyful lips when I remember thee. Upon my bed, when I meditate on thee in the night watch. He will use that time, even that time of heightened vulnerability as he's wondering what is going to come in the next hours of his watch, to praise the Lord, to establish his heart in satisfaction and of gratitude and of thanksgiving. These determinations are not just uh, continued, but they're amplified in the next verses, verses 7 and 8. Because thou hast been my help, therefore in the shadow of thy wings will I rejoice. My soul followeth hard after thee. Thy right hand upholdeth me. David says here that he is rejoicing in the shadow of God's wings. The picture here is of a bird who covers and protects its children from the elements by placing his wings over their children. And David acknowledges in this moment, right, he is talking about lying upon his bed in the wilderness. He is talking about sitting upon the night watches. He, he is recognizing that he, is, he, he is, it has been expelled from his own kingdom. And he says in that moment, that is where I rest. I rest under the shadow of my father's wings. And he proclaims in that moment, Now he will rejoice in his God. And I love this next phrase, this next determination. He says, my soul followeth hard after thee. And David pairs this thought with, thy right hand upholdeth me. Notice that in David's day of distress, his soul did not get frustrated with God, reject God, blame God, but rather he instead leaned into God he got a little bit deeper into the shadow of those wings. And he found that as he followed hard after God, God's right hand, the poetic expression of the right hand, obviously, um, there was a, a good contingency of Benjamites that were left-handed in their day, but the picture, the poetic picture of the right hand is the hand of strength, the hand of power and the hand of skill. David says, the right hand of God that God will commit to me his strength, his power, and his skill in the day that I am resting under the shadow of his wings. Now, from a physical perspective, that's not what's happening, right? From a physical perspective, what's happening is David is fleeing from his son. His son has all the power. His son is now listening to counselors as to whether or not he ought to pursue immediately or whether he ought to hold off a little bit. There's a lot of geopolitics, not geopolitics, but local politics. There's a lot of politics happening in that moment in this, about this coup. How can I best keep the hearts of the people? How can I best uh, um, have victory over my father? How can I best claim this coup for myself, Absalom is thinking. David's advisors are saying, you need to do this, you need to do that, you need to go here, you need to protect yourself in these ways. And then David sits on his bed in the night or on the night watch and he says, I'm just going to place myself under the shadow of God's wings. Doesn't mean David didn't do all the due diligence. He did. In the day he did it, right? In the day he did what he needed to do, he got out of Jerusalem. In the day he did what he needed to do, he sent his advisors back to try to, to uh, confuse the council of Ahithophel. He did these things in, in the day. 
But in the night, when he'd done everything he could do, he simply rested under the shadow of God's wings. And what that looked like was gratitude, thanksgiving, praise. Now, as is common in the Psalms, toward the end of the Psalm, we gain insight into what it is that's troubling David on that day. Because it's usually toward the end of the Psalm, after David had already established his own heart in God's character and determined his own response to the Lord, that David then speaks about those who have set themselves against him. So we read in verses 9 and 10 this, But those that seek my soul to destroy it shall go into the lower parts of the earth. They shall fall by the sword. They shall be a portion for foxes. This is where David tells us that on his mind are the men that are seeking to destroy him. And, And in this moment, he reflects once again the confidence in God. That God will defend him and that those who come against him will themselves be destroyed. This is not because David knows that he's going to be on the throne again. He was not certain of that. But this is because David knows what he knows of God's promises. That he in his day did not lift a hand against the Lord's anointed and he did not do so because he knew the consequences. And that he knew what would happen to those who would do the same to him. He expresses his confidence in the Lord. But then he also acknowledges what lies before him. And then David's final exclamation in verse 11. But the king shall rejoice in God. Everyone that sweareth by him shall glory. But the mouth of them that speak lies shall be stopped. David says, I'm commending the problem that I have to you, Lord. And what will the king do as you deal with them, as you deal with these things? The king will rejoice in God. Because those who swear by God, not meaning here by cursing by God, but rather intrinsically trusting in God's word and promises, to swear by God is to place all of my rest upon the character of God, to trust in him so implicitly, to trust in him so fully that I say everything that I'm trusting in is simply, I am invoking one thing and one thing only as my trust, and that is the character of the God that I serve. And he says, because this is who I swear by, I will glory. Because regardless of circumstances, God is still there. God's word is still true. God has not changed. His faithfulness has not changed. His love has not changed. His purposes have not changed. And this stands in contrast to the liars. To those who falsely represent themselves in this life. Who, David says, their mouths shall be stopped. with justice in the day of justice. And so we find this beautiful picture. It's a picture of reliance. It's a picture of trust. And that's the point, right? Thanksgiving, gratitude, praise. These things are not just things that we do in order that we might reflect upon all the good things that we have. Next week, as we observe Thanksgiving and we spend that time being thankful to the Lord for all that he's given to us for his many blessings. We do so. But there's far more than that that Thanksgiving encapsulates. We are thankful for the things we have. But we are thankful all the more for the God who has given us those things. 
We acknowledge the things we may not have in this day. But that doesn't change the God that is behind us. Not resting upon God because of circumstances, but resting upon God in spite of circumstances. We find ourselves in a difficult time. Obviously, we've talked through health difficulties of late. Economically, things are difficult. Culturally, things are difficult. And the psalm reminds us that in the midst of difficult times, times that we would never choose, seasons of life that are not easy, we are reminded that God is still worthy of our thanksgiving, of our gratitude, and of our praise. And this is the reminder that I desire to leave with you today, that thanksgiving is not a condition of circumstances. Thanksgiving is a condition of character. Thanksgiving is a condition of character, not of your character, but of God's character. Which means that while we can and indeed should prepare our hearts in the weeks to come to offer the Lord the sacrifices of our thanksgiving to him for the physical things which we enjoy, for many bountiful provisions and for health and for wellness and for many, uh, it's also family and church and relationships and the like. There's another subset of people under the sound of my voice and you are not in a place of bountiful provision. And you are not in a place of physical wellness and you are not in a place of relational wellness. And what creeps into the heart of man in that time is what have I to be thankful for? When I do not have these things before me, this is the time where we're supposed to be thankful for all of these things that we have, but I don't see in the things that I have thanksgiving. And that's very understandable from a Job's wife type of perspective. That as we see the things that might lie before us, that is how we feel in the flesh. But the fact of the matter is, Christian, as Job replied to his wife, shall we receive good of the Lord and not evil? On the day that Job arose and shaved his head and rent his mantle and fell down on the ground and worshipped and said, Naked came out of my mother's womb and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In that day it was not about his circumstances. In that day it was about the God that he served. God has not changed, Christian. This is your father's world. And so it is right that our mouth would praise the Lord with joyful lips because we are determined that our soul is satisfied as with marrow and fatness, not because you do not feel the thirst and the longing of the absence or the suffering or the fear. It is not because you don't feel those things, but it's because you see behind the curtain and you know that even though this is what your soul is feeling in this moment and this is what you're experiencing in this moment, yet there is a God who will hide you in the shadow of his wings. Yet there is a God who has not changed so that you can and can be determined to be satisfied as with morrow and fatness and our lips thus giving praise with joyful, our mouths giving praise with joyful lips. Because we are determined that our soul is satisfied. Because our soul follows hard after God. So that his right hand upholds us.
because his loving kindness is better than life. May our lips praise him. May the overflow in this season of thanksgiving be gratitude toward God for all of the reasons that we will think of, for the many joys, for the many blessings, for the many victories we've experienced, to be thankful in this season, but may our gratitude not cease at the threshold of our abundance. May our gratitude reflect the trust that we have in God even in the midst of those days of suffering or of sorrow. May we remember our God in those night watches. May our minds be, be, be brought back to the character of who he is. And so in doing so, may God's people thus rejoice in that God of loving kindness in those night watches, in that day of difficulty. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.